right. my, my collagen here and my coffee. Man, it mixes so well that the hydrolyzed uh, beef collagen, it just, it's so thin. True nutrition? Yeah, it just like, shit just dissolves right into the coffee. Uh huh. I love you're, it. You're just taking that without any other protein source, just mixing the coffee? Yes. Yeah. But it, I mean, I, I ate yeah. breakfast and then I, but I usually mix that into my coffee, 29 grams, which, you know, I don't taste it at all. Oh, like, there's no, no flavor. <laughs> yeah. I get the What's unflavored. the cost per pound? Expensive, like $25. Okay. <laughs> I wondered. But it works, yeah. man. So, you know, I've seen a difference in my life and I get, I get side effects or effects that one would expect from growth hormone. Like you notice that your nails start growing at a much faster rate. Um, I notice that my hair yeah, starts growing more quickly. Uh, my uh-huh. mom has been using it. She said that her skin has been improving and uh, she notices mm-hmm. the fingernail thing too. So I, and, mm-hmm. and I mean, I think even if you're using growth hormone, it's probably giving you the raw materials to upregulate that production. Right. You know, to, to right. Bi- it's giving you the building blocks. If you, you know, if growth yeah. hormone is somehow giving you more workers or BPC is giving you more workers, then it's giving you more bricks, bricks, was, bricks. The growth hormone is, is, is more like the, um, the contractor on site who's directing mm. the construction process. I like that. So they're cracking the whip. So that growth hormone, that's the thing. It, it preferentially turns on connective tissue protein synthesis. Okay. Um, as opposed to muscle myofibular protein synthesis. Hmm. So if you look at a, a, a muscle, we're going to we'll just dive right in here. Yeah, that sounds good. Things, learning yeah. So muscle is an organ. Each muscle is actually considered an organ. Hmm. Um, and I've mentioned this before on, on, uh, on the show, I believe, but we've got nervous tissue, um, muscle tissue, epithelial tissue, and connective tissue. Those are the four tissue types anatomically speaking in the body. And so that's, you know, we have cells and then we have tissues and then tissues combine to form organs and then organs can find combined to form organ systems. And then we have the whole body that's just composed of organ systems. So each muscle is actually part of the muscular system, which is composed of all the muscles of the body, each of which is considered technically an organ. You don't think of it that way. Yeah. Like you think, you know, your renal system, you've got two kidneys, you know, most people do. That's the, that's the typical. So those are the two organs, right? Or the gastrointestinal system, there's the different organs. The liver is considered one, obviously the all the the intestines, the stomach, et cetera, et cetera. But the the, uh, the each muscle is um, an organ made up of different of those tissues. So muscle cells are one type of skeletal muscle cells are one type of muscle tissue muscle cell in muscular tissue. But you've also got within there epithelial tissue in the in the endothelium of the vessels. Hmm. You've got nerves. Obviously, the nerves have to get in there too. So you've got nervous tissue, you've got connective tissue. So that outer fascia, which is what in some muscles, if you're, if you're like a Kai green person, you have that appearance of striations, which aren't individual cells. The cells are much, much, much smaller than that. The little ripples that you see as a quote unquote striation on the external surface, the muscle that's surface to the, to the body that's just under the skin. Mm -hmm. That's just the shape of the connective tissue. Those are probably the fascicles of muscle fibers actually so hundreds of muscle fibers that are sort of grouped together in um kind of a unit yeah so 
if you look then at like a cross section of a muscle, you see a whole bunch of massive amount of fibers and they're grouped into fascicles and you got nerves coming in there and blood vessels going throughout. And so growth hormone, this is why people like that growth doesn't make, doesn't turn on protein synthesis. It doesn't really produce muscle growth, at least in people that are already fully formed adults. Um, because it doesn't really do it, it, it. There's a little bit of research suggesting it turns on skeletal muscle protein synthesis. They've done stuff like um, people can find these studies. They will they will feed in like an amino acid tracer. I think they use phenylalanine in these particular studies, and they so they feed it in arterially, and then they and they know what's going in, and then they measure a vein coming out um, on the on the on the arm on the forearm. So. If you apply growth hormone and you see how many how much phenylalanine is coming out in, and the less is coming out when you've applied the growth hormone, that means some of it's staying in there. Hmm, yeah, and that okay. means protein synthesis is turned on because it's being being incorporated into, in this case, skeletal muscle proteins. What, what they're what they're assuming the phenylalanine is representative of. But generally speaking, you see the, the uh, growth hormone turns on connective tissue protein synthesis. So like. Um, uh, things in tendons, things in cartilage, for instance. So those protein fibers, as opposed to actin and myosin in skeletal muscle. Okay. So that's why, you know, people like to use growth hormone for the joints, joint integrity and that sort of thing. It's also not a, like really, um, this is a sort of an aspect of growth hormone that's interesting, is what you see too is after you train, there's just a couple studies, if I recall, that sort of point to this direction, but they're they're consistent at least, is that you get, and this is highly variable too, you get an X amount increase in protein synthesis in skeletal muscle. So let's say you, you turn on skeletal muscle by 100, protein synthesis by 100% after you train each time. And that, of course, you keep doing that, training session after session, and eat enough, got enough energy, then eventually you're going to grow, connect, you're going to grow skeletal muscle. So you're because you're you're building up the myofibular contractile protein. Yeah, we're going right in deep right off the morning, man. Like good. <laughs> everyone needs coffee, probably. Yeah. So so that's good. But what happens in terms of of um, connective tissue protein synthesis? So is not it's not the same extent of protein synthesis or potential for that to lag behind. And meaning that you're not going to strengthen the fascia and the tendons and maybe not even get the strengthening the effects that happen in the cartilage and the joints to the same extent at the same relative rate as you do an increase in the, in the muscle fibers. So this is why uh, potentially this is an explanation at least for what you see in um, guys that have grown really, really fast mm -hmm. is that they, they put, they, you get, you have an increased, potentially an increased risk for um, muscle tears. Yeah, I've always um, heard the the idea that muscle strength would be a couple of weeks ahead of the strength of your connective tissue. Thus, you don't want to go up too fast in weight. You know, let's say you're on a cycle like uh, Tren and Anadrol. You're probably going to obviously <laughs> we got test in there too, but test Tren Anadrol. Right. You're going to gain a lot of strength real fast, and that if you're more likely, let's say you're benching hundred pound dumbbells. And the next week you can do 110s. And then after that, you feel like you can do the 125s. You might be better off going up in smaller increments because that's the connective tissue can't handle 
what that muscle is able to handle. Is that, is that kind of what you're talking about here? Like this is the reasoning behind that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's part, yeah, that's definitely, so there's the, you're, you, you tied in the nervous system, oh, which okay. allows you to get stronger much faster than the rate at which you gain muscle mass. So uh. you might see someone who increases their strength over a year by a hundred percent on all their lifts. So they okay. double their, the weight they're using when they start off as a newbie, let's say, yeah. or maybe they, maybe they go on gear and they just grow like a motherfucker, you know, and they, and they get strong, really, really strong, stronger than ever before. They're not going to gain a hundred percent. They're not going to double their muscle mass, but they doubled their strength. And a lot of that is the nervous system learning how to um, move that weight. So you still got the same motor. You're just in terms of the muscle mass to move the weight around, but you, now you know how to, you're engaging it more. So you're redlining your motor, so to speak, more mm-hmm. so than you ever could before. Cause you learn how to do that because you're practicing it with training because you're training really, really hard. Yeah. So this is, this is a more a matter of the fact that you've got, you've got the actin and myosin and the muscles that are involved in the actual force production. So the myofibular proteins, and then you've got collagen, elastin, and those connective tissue fibers that are the support structure that, that basically they're holding the muscle together. Hmm. So it's kind of like the engine is the, um, actin and myosin that's driving the vehicle, right? The nervous system is the driver sitting behind the wheel. Hmm. And then the frame and the wheels and, you know, all the components that, that literally give the car structure is the connective tissue. Okay. So it's like as you grow and in this case add up myofibular protein, steroids would do this. And just training does this just in general. You get this, this <clears throat> greater relative rate of myofibular protein synthesis than connective tissue synthesis. Hmm. You're, you're adding a bigger and bigger engine so you're putting like an engine that is you know looking more like it belongs in a mustang whereas the vehicle maybe at the beginning is more like a pinto yeah so you don't really have you know it's kind of like well, go back to the electric bike or we'll that, say a fiat know, I, or a I, smart I, car for those uh, for the for, exactly, gen, you know, exactly. for the new generation watching yes yeah. well, <laughs> i've got this electric bike we talked about yesterday and i told someone it's like and it goes really really fast yeah and people imagine you riding like this you know this this mm this wimpy little 10 speed with skinny little wheels. Right. At That's what I pictured. Speed. It's like that, that bike's not made for those speeds. Guys, Scott's so you're bike running into this. goes 60 miles an hour. Don't tell the, any law enforcement about that. Keep it under your hats. He's got a bicycle. Yeah. It goes 60 miles an hour. Okay. Sorry. I just had to let my, them know. I'm so fit. I'm an aerobic machine. And I can <laughs> you're that. pedaling that, that hard. Lance Armstrong ain't got shit on me. All right. But um, yeah. So, so that's the scenario. And then you've got this, then you've got, so we're actually adding up some interesting things. So you've got the, the, the fact that if someone gets on gear, let's say, and they're doing the, the anadrol and the trend, um, situation and trends sort of renowned for like putting on strength really fast. Oh yeah. This is, this is, this is very likely a nervous system related phenomenon hmm. that's probably being, um, if we if we look at the different energy receptors, it's those membrane bound energy receptors that the ones that let you know that oh shit, I just you know there's super draw that's just gone into the system and I feel like an asshole and I want to tear shit apart yeah. within like 30 minutes. That's an immediate response in the nervous system in your brain. So you've got you've got tren in there. Anadrol will has that thing thing same the old saying you can't spell asshole without anadrol. Anadrol yeah. has a cognitive effect. Right? I'll, I'll tell you what too, I have seen. <laughs> The majority of people I've known to tear a peck had been taking Anadrol. So I'm just going to throw that out there. 
Yeah. And that's, and here's, here's where I'm going too. So Anadrol gives you water retention, right? Okay. Yeah. And so there's a scenario you take Anadrol and next thing you know, you're, you're big and you're full. And this is why people will kind of go for that water retention. Sometimes just Anadrol like the day before a show to fill out. It yeah. helps sometimes. Yeah. <clears throat> if timed. Um, or just someone starts using Anadrol and they start holding water. And if you're lean, it looks good. Um, you know, eventually you can become a water bag, you know, and then you've got low back pain and all the, um, you know, the, you do a set and you got to lie down on the couch and wait for your back pain to subside before you can do, stand up again and do something else. Yeah. But you've got that water retention. So now this happens after shows too. If someone has used diuretics or, or for other reasons, they just eat like a butthead and they, and they rebound poorly and they hold a lot of water. Now you've taken the, um, uh, the muscle cell. So imagine like the cross section of a muscle cell and, and everything is fuller. The muscle gets a huge pump. So now you've stretched all that connective tissue. Yeah. So now it's under higher tension. So it's kind of like using the car analogy. Now you've loaded down, like you're at your, 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 uh, your loading capacity, your payload capacity of the truck and maybe even beyond that. So you're, you know, the back ends like hanging, you know, and now you're going over bumps and you're stressing all those connective tissue structures, all right. the, the springs, the airbags you got in there, your axles, everything else. That's all being stressed, this connective tissue. And if you've got the scenario where someone's grown really fast and their nervous system is driving the system really hard, so they're driving like crazy mm-hmm. and they're and they're and they're lifting heavy, heavy weights. They've got a fully loaded um, bed of the truck, the connective tissue which has been lagging in protein synthesis. And this is where growth hormone could actually be helpful because it does turn that on more so than the myofibrillar protein synthesis. You've got this scenario where everything is is pointing towards we're going to have a breakdown of the connective tissue. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, we're, like you've got an overloaded truck bed. You're driving over bumps because you're lifting massively heavy, heavy weights. You've got all that water retention, which is the overload. You're driving like a maniac because you, you have no regard for, you know, what you're driving over. You're just nailing it. You're just going bonkers. So that's a scenario where someone can very easily pull muscles. Um, yeah. And then there's also the possibility, and the, the research is mixed here, that if someone's on gear, you end up with connective tissue or at least the mechanical, elastic mechanical, like non-contractile. We're not talking about like force velocity curves, things in in skeletal muscle, but simply how that connective tissue um, produces force when it's lengthened or stretched mm. changes when someone has used gear. So the 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 whatever whatever's going on when the interceptor rebinds and turns on protein synthesis in both the myofibrillar compartment as well as connective tissue, because it does do that too, you get connective tissue that doesn't have potentially the elasticity and the same mechanical properties, so it's more likely to tear. Hmm. And the evidence is mixed there. You know, it's actually, there's, and it's hard to know exactly, like, this is this is animal stuff. It's hard to know exactly what that really translates to in terms of really a relative risk, because it is the connected tissue, like, totally brittle. It's going to just tear, like, very, very easily, or so it doesn't have any elasticity. You know, I don't know. That's sort of that's a matter of interpretation, I think. But so that so is that where that is where growth hormone, that is where collagen could come in handy. Then is to kind of wrap back to where we started, where I was saying, "Hey, I'm taking my collagen." Right. Okay. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that that's why, you know, growth hormone, if you can balance out that relative rate of myofibrillar to connective tissue protein synthesis and growth hormone would help there, it might, it might help beef up your suspension, so to speak, in your, in the muscular truck that you're driving down the road to massive gains. That makes sense. Well, we've got a, we've we've got a good topic today as well. I mean, obviously we already, we already kind of covered a topic. topic. It was good. It was good. It was a nice, nice little kickoff here. Um, guys, I'm hanging out with Scott Stevenson. Uh, check out be your own bodybuilding coach, his book in the back there. Uh, I'm Scott McNally. Of course, uh, you're watching muscle minds here at think big and, um, you know, we're presented by True Nutrition, who I kind of already mentioned inadvertently at the beginning of the show. Use our code THINK if you're in Canada. Check out supplementsource.ca. Uh, and of course, uh, let's see, what do we got? The topic was, um, it, Scott and I were just talking on the phone yesterday as I drove back from Canada. And uh, I was explaining to Effort you. After run. After what? A whole, a whole trunk load of Efferdin. Yes, <laughs> bringing it all back. No. <laughs> um I, I was telling Scott about something that I learned uh, in bodybuilding that I wish I had known sooner. Um, it, when I was a kid, younger, when I was younger, uh, it, it was always thought that in order to grow muscle, you needed to really just like power shove food. You needed to push the food, push the food. And I see people doing it. And and I, I don't think it's the most productive way, especially for newer guys. You don't have to do that. Uh, to grow muscle. And in fact, what I've discovered over the years is that with, with people, if I can get them, I want to get them almost into a dieted state. And, and that's where we start out. You know, I mean, number one, you want to be able to have low enough body fat that when we do add food in, you're not going to be obese by the end of the bulk. So there is that because, you know, body fat is probably going to occur if you're, you know, adding a lot of food in, uh, over a, a long course of time and, and pushing that. Um, so being leaner does help, you know, we get asked all the time, you know, how lean should I be before starting a bulk or is it true that I need to be lean? I will tell you this, if I can take somebody and let's say that they're an average 15% and we get them into a deficit and we get them tightening up and we can get them to the point where we start adding in some food. Maybe it's a two high days a week. Maybe we're trying to grow back and legs and on their back day, later in the week, their leg day. We raise the we raise the carbs up, let's say, and and they've been consistently dropping, dropping. Say the guy started at 190 pounds, we've dieted him down to like 175, and now we're adding food in a couple days a week. But guess what? Now he's 173 the following week when we check back in. But we're eating more food, you know. Maybe we add in a third high day yet, and we get to a point where you can see they're losing body fat but they're gaining muscle, they're getting stronger, and that the food is doing so much more. And I always say that, you know, an effective cheat meal is a cheat meal that goes to the muscle. You know, you think average people, we we, we eat, you go to McDonald's, you eat a cheeseburger, you know, Red Robin or whatever, it's just another meal. It doesn't do anything. But if you take a guy who's like the extreme, let's say contest dieted, and you feed him a burger and fries, and guess what? And 15 minutes later, I remember sitting at the Arnold Classic and Dorian Haywood was a, a couple weeks out from a show and, and Dave Kallick was with us and he was like, you know, eat a burger, eat a fries and drink a regular Coke. And 15 minutes later, I look at Dorian, boom, everything is bigger. His veins down his entire body and he's sweating and he looked like a different bodybuilder. And, and if 
we can get that kind of a response to food, you know, we're that's the golden window for growth right there. And to be able to then just continue riding that, I find that if I can do that with somebody, they're going to make so much more progress than just taking an average guy who has an average response to food and just feeding him more and feeding him more and feeding him more. For a lot of people, I feel like that we're missing the boat on how to grow muscle, Scott. You said so much there, man. Yeah, that was like that was gigantic. So I'm trying to think where actually where's the where's the best place to start? Yeah. Um, one like the power shoving idea. I mentioned this yesterday when we were chatting. Is something I think that comes from which is sort of a logical approach is to look at those who are best at, at bodybuilding and see what they do when they're at their biggest. And for someone like and we mentioned Jay Cutler when we're chatting. Yeah. I think Chris Aceto said that Jay was of all of his clients the guy who could take in the, or needed the most food. You know, especially kind of at the peak of his off season, some crazy amount of carbs. He was eating carbohydrate throughout the night. I think Jay trained late at night sometimes too and. When he's living in Vegas, he would go into the, one of the Golds, maybe the one on Sahara, whichever one he trained at, and he, you know, train at like two a.m. or something. He had, he did like so the late cardio. I remember. I I yeah. asked him about that. I don't oh. want to get us sidetracked, but he had told me. Okay. I asked him in person one time, and he said the reason he did that is because he knew that his his the fellow competitors were watching him. And he wanted to do something that they weren't doing so that they would be afraid because uh-huh. he they would ah. see the reports of him doing this 3 a.m. cardio and they'd be like, oh, shit. Mind games. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's what he said. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And the thing, too, in, in Vegas is it's so damn hot. I think a lot of people do blackouts on their windows and their, oh, their yeah, houses. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, you can, you know, black out and sleep till noon, you know. And but, yeah, he handled he, he was training a lot. High volume. Uh, plus his his body Absolutely. was already like so maxed out. He was doing he was at a he was at a place most of us will never see as far as muscle mass goes. Yeah, the absolute size that he had. I mean, his I mean Jay looked like a Mr. Olympia when he was like twenty two. You can look at some of the pictures, you know. Yeah. Early on, it was like he was already top ten in the world at just you know when he was barely out of his teens. Yeah. So you can't. So that, but that, but still, that's what we see in, in advertising. That's what we see as the general mentality. It makes sense. Like, what are the best people in the world doing? And so the idea that I need to eat like Jay to look like Jay is something that you know, just you connect those two dots. And so people have this idea that in order to get big, there has to just go right into massive eating. Um, and of course, that doesn't. That's not necessary, and that doesn't make sense because. Well, first of all, you're not Jay Cutler. Only Jay is. And you're not Ronnie. You're, you're not many people are trying to do that who ones are sort of talking about who who kind of go astray and gain a body fat unnecessarily are the ones that don't have the genetics where it makes sense to do so. And yeah. they don't have that size yet. So that means they don't have the, the metabolic demand. They don't have the caloric demand to eat like that. The other thing that's so very interesting, too, it's um, there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle is that when you diet down and you reduce your body fat, you've got two things that are kind of going on simultaneously that can that you sort of have to, I think you have to consider um, hand in hand uh, so you don't make this mistake of just saying, now I just need to eat like a maniac. Mm-hmm. When you're dieted down, and this goes back to the idea of a set point or a setting point in terms of body fat, muscle mass, um, and there's actually some data from the Minnesota mini starvation study, actually, where they've where muscle mass may actually 
potentially play a role in this homeostat in terms of what your what your hunger levels do and how your body regulates body weight and body fat. And I'll get to that in a second. Okay. But when you're dieted down and lean, the average person, we're not talking about someone who was an anorexic. Some of the early data was, were an anorexic who had lost massive amounts of, of fat-free mass. Mm. Um, and you add calories and start regaining weight, you tend to put on more body fat than you do muscle mass. Hmm without any training. So your body is very, your body is very, very receptive to regaining those body fat stores sure. so that it can bring it, itself back up to where, where it's got a safety margin yeah. survival wise, so to speak in terms of body fat. So excess calories can very easily be stored as body fat. Um, but those studies met mostly there's very little that have training involved and that's the key key piece here is that we're adding training in so that you have a demand for those extra calories, but only so much of a demand. So eating, I think we said, you know, to gain like a, a pound every month is like, you need like 500 extra calories a day, something like that. Pound okay. of muscle mass every month, just to fuel that process. There's a review article by Slater where the numbers are in there and I kind of calculated a, um, a layman's way of understanding what that really means. That's a lot of calories. So you have to make sure the demand is there from the training. So, but when you're lean like that, you also see this effect, which has to do with insulin and vasodilation that you saw in Dave, um, or in, uh, not in Dave Kalik, in, um, blank on his name now. Dorian. In Dorian, yeah, it's not the other D. Dorian, when he had that meal, he had the sodium and the water he filled out, like right there before your very eyes. Yeah. So someone like post show, which is the perfect example, they're super lean and they eat these meals and for the first four or five days, maybe a week, they're having that effect and they're just filling up. They're, they're looking really, really good. They think, ah, just massively putting down the all you can eat meals is the way to go here. Yeah. Well, they're so lean that they're, they're able to see those visual changes, but that won't last forever. Even no. if you're eating low, low fat, you know, you can go maybe four or five days and then the de novo lipogenesis from the carbs will start to kick in. And how many people have you seen who, you know, basically it's, it's amazing. You can completely undo months of dieting in a matter of a couple, three weeks of eating like a butthead. It's, yeah, I, I think all of us who have competed crazy. have done that at least one time, if not more, you know, yeah. gone into the show looking shredded. Two weeks later, you don't even look like you did a show anymore. And it's a shame, too. Yeah. It, it's hard I, to stay on track after I get it. But, yeah. 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 That's another but you see that from those meals, and that gets in your head. Yeah. And, I mean, there's even, like, I mean, that's a really cool thing to see. Like, the, yeah. Talk about, you know, feeding your reward center with dopamine. It's like, wow, I ate this <laughs> big-ass meal. And, like, wow, I'm just full. And you go into the gym, and everything's great. So you do that. It's kind of like. It's kind of like using Coke, or I'm, 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 I'm this. I'm, this isn't. I'm not trying to make say that bodybuilding is like using Coke, but it's it's like a, it has a drug like effect on <laughs> feeding your reward centers of your brain because this is great stuff. Yeah, but but that's not sustainable. Just like using Coke on a daily basis is probably not sustainable for most people. It leads to an addictive down spiral in terms of your life. Eating like that, where you're just massively power shoving the food isn't going to keep on having that effect that it does when you're at five, six, seven percent body fat because eventually your body fat gets hot, goes higher. And Absolutely. now you've got this body fat where it's still below where your settling point is for most people. 
you know, 12%, 50% maybe for a guy. So your body is still rel- it's ready to soak up those calories and store them so it can get back to a, you know, a nice, even homeostatic place where it's like, I have plenty of body fat now for the next time this guy does this shit to me and tries to diet me down to, you know, yeah. or, 0% or when fat. there's a famine, you know, because our bodies don't realize we have ample supply of food. I, I think it all goes back to like some real ancient stuff, you know, it's, it's highly variable. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's the thing that's, that's so variable. Um, one of the, one of the toughest things is that most people can get really, really lean, but, um, it's very, very difficult for some people who just have, they just have the, they have poor genetics for that. And the, the best, the best example speaking that I know of um, from the research literature is literature are the quote unquote Pima Indians. I've talked about them before on the show, the Tohono O'odham okay. tribe, and they're locally in Arizona. So I, you know, I, I know Pima County is where Tucson is, where I live for a decade. So they call them the Pima Indians, but Tohono O'odham is the name of the tribe. And, the way they say it and now in modern day times like seven or eight out of ten have diabetes and like oh, nine wow. out of ten are morbidly obese mm. because and these this are are those i think mainly those living those have been studied living on the reservation they're eating they've got this americanized food source the standard american diet yep um and there's actually a poverty issue there just in general too. So there, you know, if you look demographically at people who have less money, they buy the cheapest food, which tends to be the most, the tastiest and the most adiposity generating type of food. Like it's just not even food really. It's just like how to get, how to get fat 101, just eat the stuff that's the cheapest. Yeah. Yeah. And these are individuals who are who, from that, from that genetic lineage where they're in the desert. So there's water is going to be scarce, but shit doesn't grow in the desert. So it's hard to, it's hard to grow things. It's hard. There's not a lot of animals running around. Like it's, it's hard to have enough water. So you agriculture, there's going to be a, there's a difficulty in having food. So they're literally drought and famine is, is a, was a real um, survival threat yeah. for centuries. And there was, so there was a selection process that led to the current, um, lineage of those genetic lineage of those of those tribal members Absolutely. such that it was to their advantage 100 years ago 200 years ago to be able to store whenever there's food around store that shit because there might not be food for months and those yeah. who have that like that those they're called thrifty genes hmm. sometimes in the research literature because they're they're, they're smart like they're, they're uh, i want to use the german word they, they like to save things yeah they're thrifty they're like oh the food, fat food let's make fat like food let's make yeah. fat they're way at one end. I've never, I've never, it would be interesting. I don't know if I've ever, I should, should have looked when I was there to see if there's someone who may have been native um, American Indian who was from that local tribal group who got on stage hmm. because that would have been a hell of a journey, I'm guessing, if they had the average genetics for the tribe members. So, if you have a question, I can tell. Well, I, I just wanted to make sure I kept steering us uh, on the right yeah. path here. I, there was a term you used, and I wanted to bring it back up, was you said create you know, the, the idea of creating demand. And I think that's what I'm talking about yes. by getting that dieting down process happening, being able to feed somebody food. I mean, and it doesn't have to be a cheeseburger. I just use that as an example, but we could do that high day when somebody trains back or legs, you know, big body part that we want to grow and, and it goes where we want it to, you know, we get this great fullness, they get these great pumps and, 
and we can keep, I guess the, the trick then is maintaining that response. You know, that's where, that's where the, like, that's where you really have to watch somebody because you could burn that out quick. You know, like you were saying, you can, you can eat that cheat meal once you can do it again the next day after the show. Sometime in that first couple of weeks, you're going to turn around and not be in stage shape anymore if you keep eating that way. So I guess that's where that's where the trick is, is that it's not going to be I don't know how much we're going to need next week. It's based off of how you look. But I still try to keep those low days in, you know, on a day where, say, we are not training. We might bring the food back and maybe try to do things to keep that insulin sensitivity high, you know, and then and then exploit it on the days we want to. I found that I get I get about a good eight weeks out of that is is about where I my guys seem to tap mm-hmm. out. We get about a good eight weeks of riding that wave back up. You gain a lot of weight in the process, though a lot of good weight. Yeah, this this is the notion of nutrient timing, which is a mixed bag in the literature. Got a big ass. It's still I think relevant. A big ass uh, review article, three part review article on the Elite FTS site for people who haven't seen that. Okay. Um, and there's some good, very well put together studies showing an effect of nutrient timing where literally you made that, they made that demand. You've increased insulin sensitivity, speaking of, and you feed the food then when you've turned on the protein synthesis. So you're timing the nutrient intake to meet the relative demand. Yeah. Um, for, and the relative stimulus that you provided with this, with the training to turn on protein synthesis so that as opposed to, let's say, I always use this example just, just sort of as a, a way to kind of ima- imagine if you, you just intentionally trained at 8 a.m. and eat all your food at 8 p.m. Okay. So the, so you're like, you, you had the, it was like you did the opposite of nutrient timing. Yeah. I'll be interested to see someone do like an intermittent fasting type of study where they intentionally time the training around, the, you know, it, within, the, inter, within the, the feeding period and then as far away from the feeding period as possible and see what happens body composition-wise. <laughs> intentionally kind of a proof-of-concept study to see that, you know, if you really screw up the nutrient timing, you've got an issue. So, yeah, I, I think there's something to, to say for that. And, and basically what you're, what you're doing is, is rolling, you're, doing, you're setting yourself up for the best amount of success because you can only grow muscle so fast and you can, depending on the person, many people can put body fat on at a, almost a, an essentially unlimited rate. <laughs> calories, you know, literally you can, I mean, you can eat an extra thousand calories a day and, you know, go back and you do the, do the numbers. And if you do that for 30 days, you may have put on a, what essentially is 30 pounds worth of body fat, you know, containing those extra, most of those extra calories. You can account for it. There's a peanut butter study that Jose Antonio did. Um, Thank you for tuning in to another podcast here at Think Big Bodybuilding Media. If we've provided value to you today, then please consider contributing to our show. You can help support the show through Patreon. Every $5 helps to pay for the software and the hardware and everything else that goes into making a podcast. You can also contribute by using our code at True Nutrition. True Nutrition has been our title sponsor for several years now. I'm super grateful for them. And I've believed in True Nutrition supplements long before they sponsored our programming. You could use our code THINK for health supplements and performance supplements. Feel free to hit me up if you have any questions. And if you're in Canada, check out supplementsource.ca. They have free shipping over $99, huge discounts on overstock, short-dated, and label-changed products. Plus, they have all your normal supplements too. Thank you guys for listening to the commercial. I hope you're having a great day and that your bodybuilding is going well. 
let's get back to the show. Been a few years back now. Were they? Were they? They had a, a group that was training, and they had you know, standardized diet and um, training, and they watched the muscle growth and changes in body composition. And then they added—I can't remember how much—three um, hundred, maybe five hundred calories a day just from peanut butter. So everything else was the same. Did the dietary recalls? There wasn't—you know—they didn't lock them into a, a clinic so they could watch everything. So there's sure. you know some issues there with you know dietary recall always. But they just added extra calories from peanut butter, hmm. which is obviously just fucking delicious. Mm-hmm. But these were calories that were to be extra, and I don't. They, there was no nutrient timing involved. I can't remember how. I'd have to go and look to see if they um, where they put those relative to the um, to the training. But all of the extra calories went to body fat. No kidding. Now, now I'm not even sure if they did training in this study. I'll have to go and look now to check that out. Okay. But the main, the main thrust of this was the extra calories from peanut butter, despite it being just nectar of the gods for some people and like yeah. a horrible trigger food. Yeah. It all went to body fat. And I've mentioned the study to people before and who, who love peanut butter. They think, ah, you know, I'm, I'm rebounding. I need to put some weight on. I need the extra calories. Add some peanut butter. And peanut butter, at least from this study, was just a horrible choice. It went right right to body fat hmm. and literally they could account for like it was almost like a hundred percent of the extra calories were counted for by their estimates of body composition in terms of body fat that was added in the peanut butter group hmm. so not a good thing so you have to be, be careful for that but if you if you take your extra calories in let's say as carbohydrate yeah which is much less likely to be stored as body fat and you're doing that, like you said, intermittently on the on certain training days. So you don't have this excess on days when there's no demand. Um, and you do it like back days and leg days. Yeah. You're going to maintain that insulin sensitivity, which probably plays a role here. And you're taking advantage of this nutrient. T- so you're pairing your nutrient demand with the nutrient supply. Yeah. It's coming from your diet temporarily. So everything's, everything's matched up. But then eventually you reach some point where... You know, you, you, you've, you've added, you, in order to keep moving forward and growing, and this is what you alluded to, like at the eight-week mark for some people, depends on how you stretch it out. You know, you could yeah. be longer than that. I've seen, gone for like months and months and months with people. Yeah, I, course, I, I use... the approach that I have. And, it's, oh, no, I just was going to say, I, I, I use eight weeks as like kind of just the middle of the road spot where, you know, we're going to, ha- we, we, we probably don't have to change too many facts. We don't have to work too hard to keep this going for eight weeks. I think a factor too right. is, is how long is somebody willing to sit in that place? There's some psychological factors to it because I do think that with this, you start creating more hunger too with those high days and then you get the you know higher insulin levels and then lower insulin levels to follow. I think there's some psychological aspects that are maybe some a limiting factor for some people. It's it's very hard to reverse diet like that for many people. Yeah, um, yeah. I think you're doing it the way that I've. It's in my book. I've been doing this for like 20 years, basically as a general strategy for most okay. people. Is you just add calories around the workouts and progressively increase those yeah. until you've kind of maxed out that, and then on and, and targeted towards days where you're training weak muscle groups if that's part of part of a priority or a goal that you set. Yeah. And then eventually you start to add on, but those other days you're hungry. And I actually, I actually want, and my clients can attest this. I want some hunger on those non-training days. Okay. I want them yeah. to feel a little bit ready to eat yeah. so that when they finish that training session and they're going to have a post-workout meal, they're ready for it. 
Yeah. Don't want them like, you know, just suffering, like, you know, complete food focused all day long. No. They can't do anything but think about the next day and have the meal that they're just daydreaming about eating. But it's a tough place to be. And this is where, this is where coaches sometimes, they're doing much better at this. I'm so glad. And this is, it's in the book here over my shoulder. Um, I've got the post work, the post contest period first in the book because hmm. it's an important one. Because if you think about like, what are we going to do? We can do the contest to sort of reach the pinnacle, but it's like going to the top of the mountain. It's like, okay, I got enough. I had we brought enough food and supplies to get to the top of the mountain. And then you're like, oh fuck, I'm at the top. How do I get down? I don't have any food, <laughs> you know, and yeah. run out of everything. Like you need to figure out how that's important too. Cause that's your chance to potentially make improvements. Absolutely. As you slowly reverse diet in the way you've you've done with your clients. So when you get to that point, let's say, you know, four or five months later, yeah. in, a, in a really good scenario where your food is back to you're not having like you're not hungry on non-training days. You're sort of out of that post contest period. Right. And now you're eating maybe more calories than you were um, at at that relative hunger level in the previous year, but you've got 10 pounds more muscle with the same amount of body fat or yeah. five pounds more muscle. You've got yourself to a better place size wise. You made those improvements. And then, then you move to the off season. And if you're someone who's going for massive amounts of size, then you may end up, whoops, you may end up in a Jay Cutler like situation where you're having to like really push the food, you know, and you're really like, it's becomes a chore to eat. And those are, that's a different scenario. But that's months down the road. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the that's the, the trick to know that temporal context, that historical context of like, uh oh, if you try that, like right afterwards, what you eat. That's so. That's the thing. That's so crazy, is that what you eat? Maybe eating ten months later would have a completely different effect on you two weeks after the show. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, ten months like deep into your off season. In terms of your GI wouldn't be able to handle it. You'd get fat really fast. Yeah. But you're eating that food, and now you're not putting on body fat at a, at a super rapid rate because you've worked your way up to that. You maybe regain some muscle mass. Various things. Your neat is probably different. You're moving more. Mm. So you're not, de you're not defying any laws of thermodynamics, but your metabolism has changed. Your activity levels have changed. Your fat-free mass has changed. So your diet reflects that. Maybe able to train with higher volume too, so you've got a greater epoch um, that's happening post training. So you've you've basically you've got a totally different diet. And you're thinking like, man, at my end of my off season, I was eating four thousand calories. I'm going to hop right into that right after the show. It's like, no, don't do that. Yeah. You're missing a golden opportunity there. Um, and I, and I'll I'll toss this in now. I alluded to it earlier, and then I'll then I'll shut up for a sec. The an interesting thing from this Minnesota mini starvation study. So this was. They, they basically, um, are you familiar with this study before? I may have mentioned it We've before. talked about it before, yeah. So, yeah. yeah but, but maybe give so a little they, bit of yeah. background, yeah, so people understand. If yeah, this was like in the 40s. Um, they took these uh, volunteers and they just basically, um, they, put, they put them on a severely caloric restrictive diet and brought their body fat down really, really, really low. And um, then they refed them and watched... Uh, their body fat, and they basically found that one of the major conclusions was that body fat is a major regulator of your of your appetite yeah. and your metabolic rate. 
Um, and at one point, and this is where I'm going, I'm jump, I'm bypassing a bunch of the earlier, the kind of the main find, cause there's an interesting one at the end. So I think they, they sort of reverse diet and there's no training involved here. They just, they restricted their food as they refed them and watched these very watch variables as they got back somewhat close to, um, their original body composition. I think it was 16 weeks later, they got them back to their original body fat, okay. but they weren't back to their original fat-free mass, which is representative of muscle mass. So their muscle mass was low mm. compared to where they were before they started the diet. And then they, then they had like, I think they gave them four weeks and they gave them a free, just a free for all, eat whatever you want, which is what, you know, coaches, okay, we, you know, we, I, we got the show post pre and put, we got the show picks. We're done. You know, you, you only paid me through the show. You're good. And then they just let their client just, you know, wander off into the land of buffets and they just destroy <laughs> themselves. Right. Yeah. Quick. So they, they let the, and they, and you, you, I remember I could see the plot in my head when they, when they did the free for all their, their caloric intake just went sky high. Yeah. And for about four weeks, it was really, really high. And what the pattern that emerged from that, was that they free fed like that in order to get their muscle mass back to its original state, their fat free mass back to its original state. So there's something about this homeostat um, in the body that regulates around body fat, but also muscle mass. So these individuals, when they got done, um, they got, they, they died them slowly to get their body fat back to where it was previously. And then they let them free feed and they free fed until they got their muscle mass back to where it was previously. Hmm. But what that meant was that their body fat was higher. Oh, wow. So this is one of the concerns people have with yo-yo dieting, for instance, that you're going to end up, you know, losing muscle mass and then having this sort of effect where you end up free feeding in, until your, your, your muscle mass goes back to where it once was. And that leaves you with more body fat and less muscle mass or the same muscle mass. Yeah. So back to someone who's come off a, a post-contest diet. And they start, they start just massively feeding. Um, you've got muscle mass, which will only come back so fast. Mm -hmm. So let's say, let's say you lost, just make any, like, let's make it, let's make it 10 pounds of muscle just to keep the numbers easy. So you lost 10 pounds of muscle during your diet. It wasn't a necessarily successful diet, but you lost some muscle mass that you're going to regain. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you can only regain that so fast. It may take, let's say two months. Okay. That's a massive rate of muscle mass gaining. So, but in two months, you can put on massive amounts of body fat. Yeah. So they would, that person, if they're just kind of going by their, by their appetite in this case, would, would refeed until their body fat got back to its, its setting set point or settling point. It's where it wants to be. And then they would just keep on going until the muscle mass, if, if this phenomenon occurs in them, got back to where it once was. And that could mean that their body fat is who knows where way, way past where it once was. So they end up fatter than they were before they started their contest diet hmm. or where they, where they would have been otherwise because they didn't give themselves time to allow the muscle mass to come back and then hopefully exceed where it once was. So you gotta, that's, you have to if you keep that in mind. I think that's the, the key, key thing here is that, you know, my muscle mass is going to have to come back as well for my appetite. It's going to take some time for that to happen. So just give it that time, feed it well on those training days with the, the approach you're using, which is, I think it's just, 
it's it's kind of common sense, but it works brilliantly. I mean, you've like you said, people are getting leaner, or so it's like literally. You're this is this is what's kind of cool is it you, you start adding calories and people look like they're at least getting leaner. Yeah, and their body composition is going the right direction. So relatively, they probably are. They may not be losing body fat where they're gaining muscle mass, but although that's a complete possibility, it certainly happens in in the studies and in real life. Not that the studies aren't real life, but you start gaining muscle at a, a relative rate that's greater than the body fat, and you are technically getting leaner from a percentage standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you'll look it, you'll see it, like what you've seen in your in your in, in your in your check-in pictures. So, yeah, it's a very fascinating phenomenon. It's it's just a hard thing, like psychologically, to wrap your mind around. It's like we're not done yet, <laughs> you know. And there's no dangling carrot waiting for you necessarily. Yeah. Unless you've done this and seen it happen, like, oh, like, I'm going to be assessed by the judges in 10 weeks how well I did my rebound. It's like, nah, you're going to just have to do this and have you have a coach that supports you or maybe you have Instagram pictures to kind of keep you accountable. Something like that that is akin to the motivating force that the contest once had, I think, is nice to employ psychologically to say, I'm not just out in no man's land, like, battling the same dietary battle against hunger on a like, you know routine basis throughout the week. Right. And I got nothing to show for it. I'm just like, ah, oh, this reverse dieting is just sucks. And I'm getting fatter and it's like not that great. It's like, no, you're doing the right thing. So having some way to track that, present that, you know, be accountable for that or make that akin to whatever drove you during the pre-contest period to get leaner um, so that you have – have a, a good adherence, I think makes sense because that's that's the hardest part. That's hard for some people. For a lot of people, that's harder than the diet. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, because you don't have that yeah. tangible, concrete date that's now uh, looming ahead of you. And I think it's difficult too for people. You know, people that come to me and that they say, "Hey, I want to put on muscle," and I say, "Okay," and then we pull the food down and put them into a deficit. It's like it, it, it does take some patience to get to that spot. But if you've just right. been eating like whatever you want and you're not gaining or losing, if we just start adding food and you're 15% body fat, I can guarantee you that over time that body fat's probably going to go up more. If we get you to that place where you, the, the term you use is create a demand. I wrote that down here. Create a demand, you know, then you're going to be yeah. in a much better place to be able to really utilize those nutrients and you feel it you know but it it does take delaying that gratification you know it takes delaying that gratification to see like what's going to happen with that the bigger picture but hey look at it this way you know you're going to be hopefully alive a year from now and especially for guys that have tried to grow and tried to grow and it, maybe they haven't made the best progress, maybe trying to first get the body fat off, get that yourself in that position where you can add a high day in. Maybe you could try something different this year around and, you know, yeah. see where you're at, you know, in six months from now. I think I think it'd be a, a, a good challenge for people. Yeah, folks are just going to talk about this. I think there's a psychological boundary that people get to. Once your body fat gets too high, you're just sort of physiologically, it's going to resist you going higher. Yeah, your appetite, your GI tells you all these things, and then psychologically, it's like I not, I just, I don't want to look like a big round, you know. Yeah, not that's like sloppy powerlifter. I want to look like a bodybuilder. You know, that's the other I think aspect that can be helpful is that. 
you know, the, the versus the power shoving food, what we're talking about here is um, it, it, it and, and initially I said it can be a difficult part. You know, you increase the hunger, you know, you've got to deal with that hunger. So that can be difficult to, to do for you know months after month after month. But at the same time, I do think that being able to maintain hunger while you are trying to grow muscle is is important. I never thought that I never thought about the importance or the value of keeping your appetite high. I just in the past when I was young, younger and trying to grow, I just right. thought you just got to eat. I don't want to eat, but I got to eat. You just do it. There were times that you just like I would chew, 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 throw water in my mouth from my gallon jug, swallow and repeat until the bowl was empty, you know. But nowadays yeah. I try to keep people hungrier to the point where, you know, they're wanting to eat that next meal. Their stomach feels empty, you know. Yeah. And I'll toss this in there, too, because. I mean, in this bodybuilding, competitive bodybuilding isn't, as we know from you know, events of late, bodybuilding is not the most, it's always sort of, no, we're sort of, it's not the most healthy endeavor. Sure. And trying to push your body weight and your muscle mass and everything, you know, to its genetic limits, so to speak, is not the healthiest endeavor. So there can, for some people, be situations where the food is a struggle, like putting down the food, like that happens a lot. Like where you're doing the choo choo choo, and you know you got no salivation because your body doesn't want this, yeah. And you're having to use water to, to bring the food down. The thing, the the point where that would make sense is if someone is, and this is, I've got this in the book too. It's all sort of in one in one of the earlier chapters, is where you you're paying attention to all your measure your all your markers of muscle growth. So maybe I always suggest people kind of do a DEXA if they can. And then correlate that, produce an algorithm or a um, regression equation with skin folds that they can sort of get an estimate of their muscle mass. So you realize that, you know, I want to get to this amount of muscle mass because this is what I need to have. If I'm going to step on stage at the weight that I want to be at the top of my weight class at four or five percent body fat, that means I need to have X amount of muscle mass. Currently where I am, I'm five pounds shy of that. So I'm going to have to eat to 10 pounds body weight beyond where I currently am mm -hmm. in order to get that muscle mass. Cause I'm probably in, and there's a possibility someone, if they're, if PEDs are involved, they may put that muscle mass on during the prep unless they have a history of doing that or, or they've, you know, they're going to use PEDs for the first time during your prep. That's not something you can probably count on. So generally getting that the purpose of the off season is to get that muscle mass. So you may end up in a situation where like, okay, I'm five pounds shy. I'm paying attention to my body fat. I'm paying attention to my muscle mass. I'm getting stronger and making progress. The food is not going down easy, but I'm struggling with it. I'm doing some of those things and I'm taking upon myself the fact that this is not the healthiest thing to necessarily do to push my body because it doesn't want to do this. And, but I'm still making progress. I'm still going in the right direction Yeah. as opposed to blindly saying, no, man, just fucking hardcore. Just knuckle down and eat that shit and just go. And you just, you end up like, and you've interviewed people, like you've heard this story so many times where people just pushed, I just want to weigh 300. You know, yeah. I just <clears throat> want to weigh 275. Oh, yeah. looking at the scale. <clears throat> no looking at anything. And literally they're just putting on body fat and they're yeah. just pissing in the wind. And they're, and they're, and they're doing themselves a disservice. Um, uh, creating massive amounts of inflammation, probably like literally they're, 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 they're not, they're not helping their body out. They're probably maybe even impeding recovery. 
getting to the point where the body fat's so high they can't train the way they want to, so their training stimulus is going down. They're basically reached and gone past the point of diminishing returns. They maybe even could go be end up going backwards. Yeah. So they start overtraining, overreaching more easily. So that's not when you want to be, you know, like saying now it's time to power shove even harder. It's it's just the fact that it may make sense for some people to push the food in a way they haven't, but you need to know that you're doing that with with some positive benefit coming from it, not when you're not just blindly pushing it into the unknown. And that's where, you know, monitoring what's going on makes sense. So, and that's where, you know, Aceto's looking at people, like he's got this, you know, magical genius eye. He's looking at Jay and he's like, you know, add 50 grams of rice to your sixth meal or what have you. And like he does that and he sees the difference three days later when he does that, you know? Yeah. so Aceto is assessing those things, and he's got Jade putting that, that food down, or name the bodybuilder who's had to eat a lot of food. They know that that's working, that's going the right direction. Things are, are it's, it's a productive effort. Yeah. But just mimicking the effort without knowing that you're getting the same productivity doesn't, isn't, uh, isn't the way to go about it unless you, unless you just want to get as fat as possible, which I don't think most people do. All so right. That's a whole other endeavor. Yeah, no kidding. So I had one more thing. Uh, I had a a, a question that uh, Matt Levins sent us. This is over on Patreon. And uh, he says, and by the way, shout out to everybody who's watching live today. We had, uh, let me say, uh, we had a few people who were tuning in. Uh, Steve tuned in for the first time. So what's up, man? And Andrew Nolan's with us. Steve Parker asked, uh, you know, why do I crave peanut butter now? And uh, Danny Danny Vance could relate to the getting fat part that we we had talked about. Um, but yeah, so Matt had this topic that uh, he he wanted to ask you. He says, "Question for Scott Stevenson: um, Have you heard of too many injectable anabolics causing stomach stomach issues such as nausea?" Uh, and then he speculates. He says, "Like maybe too much nitrogen retention." I know too much is a very person is very person dependent so in basically injectables and digestion i know i've seen my share of issues that were related with those factors but i thought you might have some science on what we might be seeing with this yeah um first we'll 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 go into the nitrogen retention thing because he's because he's tossed that in so people use it's a fancy scientific term but what that what that means that term comes from a way to assess to what extent the body has incorporated protein. Okay. Protein is about 16% nitrogen. And it, it's not a very, interestingly enough, for sort of mysterious reasons, um, it's not a very quantitative way of assessing and predicting body composition changes. So what you can do is measure the nitrogen in from the protein that's going in. So your nitrogen that comes into the body comes from protein. It's about 16% nitrogen by weight. So you eat a 100 grams of protein, you get 16 grams of nitrogen. And then you can measure the nitrogen that's lost by the body. Okay. So that would be in the feces. That would be in the urine. Urea is a big source of that. It's a big way in which you lose nitrogen. That would be in then body tissues that are sloughed off, some of it in the feces, skin, hair, nails, and then nitrogen that's lost in your sweat. And like in the original studies, they usually estimate some of those other things based on the, usually they just measure urine and they estimate the others as some percentage of what you see in the urine. But so that's nitrogen loss. So if someone's taking in, um, let's say, um, 
200 grams of protein, 32 grams of nitrogen per day. And so that's nitrogen in and nitrogen out collected from all those sources is 16 grams. So that's equivalent to 100 grams of protein lost. That would mean a positive nitrogen, ba nitrogen balance, 16 grams or equivalent to 100 grams of protein. So the idea would be there that someone is accumulating 100 grams of protein in the body per day. And if you're in the weight training situation, you presume you've created the demand for protein synthesis and skeletal muscle. So that protein is going to skeletal muscle mass. The thing is, is that the nitrogen balance studies don't predict that you're going to get um, the muscle mass changes in the body. It doesn't pan out that way. Um, there's a particular kind of cool study where with that Mark Tarnopolsky did years ago, where they had graded levels of protein intake with people who are resistance training. And they saw this positive nitrogen balance with the higher intake of protein. And it was a, I don't know, maybe 12 week study. I can't remember the, the, the time. And the highest protein group had this awesome positive no nitrogen balance. And I don't even think they addressed this in the discussion, if I recall, but I'm like, well, that's cool. So I went and like, look, took the number. And I'm like, so what's that mean in terms of what should have happened muscle mass wise? Because muscles roughly one, one quarter protein, three quarters water. These, they should have put on like 12 pounds of muscle mass, which would have shown up in the body comp. Nothing. Hmm. So the nitrogen balance things it's used in starvation is used in various studies. And it's an, it's, it's an old school method that was used to evaluate protein needs, protein recommendations, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't really pan out in terms of body composition changes, unfortunately. Okay. So that's what people say when they mean nitrogen balance. It's not that the nitrogen is getting like, you know, caught up in your GI tract, you know, like you all this, you have this nitrogen sludge, you know, that's, <laughs> that's giving okay. you constipation or causing you diarrhea or something like that. The nitrogen balance idea is just that the nitrogen is being is a representative protein that's retained in the body. And we'd hope it'd be muscle mass in our case. Okay. So, so the, the thing there is that although they're not sort of renowned for this gear has to be detoxified by the body and the liver is our main, main organ of detoxification. Mm. So just like with orals, you can cause um, uh, liver hepatic stress and you do that. Your liver is one of your organs of the gastrointestinal system. So you can, you can end up causing, you know, cholestasis and um, which would give you like potentially fat malabsorption issues and other liver, liver stress, which you'd see typically in the and the liver enzymes of, the, of your blood work, GGT, ALT, AST, et cetera. And this goes beyond so, just orals, you're saying, correct? Yeah, I mean, I you can clear use about that. much more. Yeah, yeah, you can use much more. But there's, like you said, there's, you said it right off the bat, there's variability as to how well people tolerate those things. So, and, and there's a possibility too, like there's different, we've gone to this before on the on the show. I think we had a whole show we kind of dedicated to liver detoxification, a huge component. So I've covered it before, but um, there's P450 enzymes that are involved with the detox detoxification process. And, you know, we know some of them that are used and it's, but it's not clearly delineated, which at least that I could find, which ones specifically are um, responsible for each specific steroid. Steroids have different structures. So there's a possibility, for instance, let's say someone, let's say someone's doing a cycle where they've got They've got some liver stress from Anavar, not thinking it's going to be much, and they're doing tests, and then they add DECA, and they had no issues with their GI, and they add DECA on top of their test Anavar um, stack, and now the DECA and the Anavar together 
create liver stress that neither of those would have huh. individually because they end up overloading the P450 enzyme that's responsible for both of them. Or they, there's a synergistic effect that amplifies the toxicity and the um, hepatotoxicity that the Anovar was bringing about. Or, or simply that they sort of get past the, their threshold for um, toxicity from the from the injectables because of the amount of doses they're using. You go to three or four grams, that's a lot of gear. You yeah, know? yeah. So um, I saw years ago someone had estimated from, and I wish I could find this again, took the sort of did a rough estimate from um, values in rats or mice, there's a rodents at least, that were given injectables. Um, that showed that, you know, up to like a gram's worth of testosterone in humans, the relative dose relativized based on body surface area, not just per kilogram, um, was something that, that at least rodents could handle, the, the humans could handle a gram of testosterone per day or something like that without hepatic stress based on a rodent study using an equivalent dose for X number of weeks. So you can handle a lot according to that study that but that that's the closest thing i've ever seen to um someone trying to like look at like a dose response in terms of toxicity and injectables we know that you put you start trying to do a gram of anadrol or a gram of superdrol or whatever like one day you're not a happy camper um because yeah. the methylation there was designed to make that difficult on the liver that's the whole point yeah of of the modifications is that the liver can't handle them very well the benefit is that you have a steroid that that is orally available. The negative is that you have a steroid that's hepatotoxic. Yeah, so. I think a factor could be too is maybe not the steroids at all, but like when we had uh, vigorous Steve on the show, and he was talking about thing. yeah solvents and inflammation totally. that that stuff could cause. Yep, absolutely. And he can look back on that. Or Steve's got a whole whole. She's got two podcasts, I think, or two videos on YouTube where he covers that. Yeah. In detail. There's even an article on his website. We have but, one more that yeah. came up and I, this is going to be like, this is one of those moments where we're like, you know who we should ask? We should ask Scott Stevenson. Scott would know. Oh, it's come up more than once um, on blood, sweat and gear. Uh, Skip, you know, Skip's been around forever and he's, he's figured shit out by applying it in real life. But that doesn't necessarily always answer questions from a scientific perspective. And sometimes that's what we want to hear on podcasts, you know, as listeners. I uh, iron deeper, baby. So uh, this, is, this is the question. Um, he said, uh, ask you, ask him about what happens to the oil after it's injected, if it's metabolized or what. So Skip was thinking, yeah. he's like, if you put that oil in your body, you're, you, you know, are you know, you got to think. So a, a tablespoon of olive oil is about 15 grams of fat, right? So, I mean, that's right. how, how many grams of fat are we injecting? And then Skip's question is, is, is that being metabolized just like an orally consumed fat? If there's a guy running mm. two grams a gear, uh, is he getting, you know, an extra 100 grams of fat per day in his diet? So, all right, so two, let's, just, let's just do the rough numbers. Two grams a gear, he's doing, let's say he's doing 200 milligrams per mil. Okay. All right? So he's doing 10 mils, okay. which is about 10 grams, um, roughly. I mean, 0.9 grams per mil is, which is what the density of fat is. Okay. And we're not even 
if we're if looking at a, you know, if it's if it's 200 milligrams per mil, it's actually 0.8 grams of, and actually, and then we have the BA, we have the solvent, um, we have all, all the other additives. So we, we're actually it's much less. Let's just make it 10 10 grams a week. Okay. That's someone doing two grams. It's actually probably more like six if you do the numbers. That's what is it, six six times nine. You know, six grams of fat times nine calories per gram. Was that sixty-three? So, yeah, sixty-three grams of sixty-three calories. That's that's nothing. So we're talking about a hundred calories a week. Okay. From from the actual. So it's oil not that much there. oil then is really what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If you're doing if you're doing three cc's a day, right? You how know, many milliliters three. are in? How many milliliters would be in a tablespoon? That's what I I wonder. Twelve. 12 to 15. Oh I shit. I didn't realize it was that much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The one, one milliliter gram, the density of water is one gram per milliliter at 12 degrees Celsius or whatever it is. And, okay. and fat is 0.9 grams per mil. So three mils, if we presume that like, if you just injected pure, pure fat, there was no gear in there, which is, you know, 200 milligrams per mil or 0.2 grams per mil. Okay. So this, that leaves, you know, 0.8 grams of other stuff. And you've got, let's say, 20, 20% benzyl benzoate and 5% benzyl alcohol, that's 25%. So there's, that's actually, that accounts for 45% of what's in there. The mm. other 55% is your carrier oil. Okay. So in each mill, you've got 550 milligrams or a little more than a half of that is carrier oil. So a 3cc or 3 mil injectable has 3 times 0.55. 1.65 grams of fat. So that's 1.65 times nine, whatever, whatever that is, um, uh, you know, 15 calories per day okay. times, times seven days, you know, not a lot, but is, is that, eat, yeah, is that processed as uh, fat would be that you ate, you know, orally? Yeah. 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 It'll, it, it, I mean, it's gonna, it's gonna just slowly, um, leak out, dissolve out from, from the depot where it's been injected. Okay. It'll end up in the, in the bloodstream, um, you know, and you know, it'll end up being metabolized as fats that would end up in the bloodstream. Just like if you eat a fatty meal, you can measure blood triglycerides, um, or it'll be taken into the, the lymphatic system metabolized as fats would be. So, okay. yeah, it'll just be, but, but it's, it's pretty minimal, you know, yeah. it's not a whole lot. Like, like that's, that's, it's almost like you're digging into that peanut butter, yeah. you know, and you get a little bit of, you know, a little fat here, like a little, like you slop it in so fast and get some on your <laughs> chin and you just stick it in your mouth. Like, yeah, that's, that's the 1.5 grams of fat, right? Yeah. yeah. That much. It's very, very little. So. So not much. But yeah, it's a good, but it's it, a good question. But it does yeah. absorb. Yeah. Okay. We weren't sure. We yeah. had we had somebody, of course, somebody came on YouTube and was like, that is ridiculous. The fats do not absorb if you inject them. This, this, and this happens. Somebody had the answer and said, no, you're wrong. Uh, of course, what, you know. Where did, he, where did he say they go? I, or what did he say? I, I like don't they, know. I don't know. I don't remember. It was, oh, he just, okay. you know, it was just one of I'll those go, things where like. Yeah. No, yeah. this was like months ago. It's been an ongoing, like off and on conversation and it I just was you. an on Keep conversation again. Yeah. Recently. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. We're glad that we finally yeah. know though, but it, 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 at the end of the day, it's not very relevant to our gains or losses either. 
I mean, you can you can get like if someone gets like a sterile abscess or an or an abscess like a you know where the they literally have, um, ah, welcome, um, where they literally have an encapsulation of the depot because you get some inflammation which could be a function of that of that carrier oil or the solvent. Then then you can have a situation. This there's there's some gruesome ultrasound pictures mm. and pictures of of uh, medical and, and case studies of people with abscesses, bodybuilders with abscesses where they've had the, and the guys who do synthol do the, the um, SEOs, you know, that, that have the severe body dysmorphia that just their arms are, you know, 30 inches. Yeah. And you see eventually they get to the point where they have to have that shit cut out, but they they have situation where the SEO just stays there mm. and becomes a capsule. The body's like, this is a foreign body. Yep. Um, and I think that is what, you know, potentially could happen with some of those more, inflammatory inflammation producing um, carrier oils that we talked about in the podcast with Steve and that those get injected and those cause pain, which is indicative of something you got inflammation going on in that area and the body is going to do, it's going to, it's going to try to do something to, to sort of ward that off. And that's when you get an encapsulation situation where you've got, you know, literally connected tissue, scar tissue, you end up with a, you can end up with a, um, and there's pictures that people can just put in. I think they can probably go to Google Scholar, scholar.google.com and put in sterile abscess bodybuilder and probably find some of these case studies. And there's, there's one, like it was a, like a, I remember seeing the cross section of the glute and you see the glute mm -hmm. tissue as it normally would look, maybe it was an MRI and they're like, there's little, these little pockets yeah. of, of like sterile abscesses where there was, you know, injections that had just there's just stayed and those stayed there yeah those little pockets of fat that were there that you know that were i think probably very painful and those need to be drained you know or, or excised cut out yeah so but yeah, otherwise hmm. it's just and it's a slow process that's like you know with the castor oil that's so thick right it stays there for a long time you know i could imagine yeah. but eventually it'll just seep out you know um, I imagine. It's so it's got such specific gravity and so dense. All right. Well, listen, let's so, wrap this thing up. Scott, it's good to be back. Um, yes, and, uh, you know, like I said before, the, you know, the earlier in the show, check out Scott's book. It's over his shoulder there. There's Scott, Scott, and Scott. This is your setup currently is kind of trippy because that picture of you in the background is almost as big as the, like, uh, it's very, is it like, it, it, like there's a one-to-one -one almost going on there. And then there's little is, Scott, Thirst weird. Trap Scott, on the cover of his book, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. There you, go. you can go to byobbcoach.com to pick that up. You can also go over to uh, just uh, Amazon and check that out. Get the hardcover there. Go to our sponsors, truenutrition.com. Yep, Barnes & Noble as well. Truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK for some great savings on uh, high-quality supplements. And uh, supplementsource.ca for you Canadians out there. Scott. It's been a pleasure as always, my friend. Likewise. Yes, sir.